Come the middle of 2023, a lot of mortgage brokers, myself included, will come off fixed rates and feel the full brunt of the current interest rate hike cycle. Will this be a game changer for the property market or will it be a non-event like the interest-only rate cliff that we were so worried about back in 2017 and 18? What is the scale of the problem and who is most at risk? Welcome to the elephant in the room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. There's possibly no better person to talk to about mortgage stress in Australia than Martin North, as he has a long history of research in this area and he publishes a number of relevant indices on defaults, mortgage stress and consumer confidence. Martin, if you didn't already know, is the founder of Digital Finance Analytics, a boutique research and analysis and consulting firm who specialises in offering insult, insult. <laughs> How's that for a Freudian sleep? I think we have to keep that one in, insult to injury. He specialises in offering insight into the dynamics of the mortgage, lending, savings, payments and superannuation sectors. Now, Martin also curates the YouTube channel Walk the World where he covers finance and property news with a distinctly Australian flavour and more than a few controversial guests. In addition, he is a founding director of Asbestos Awareness Australia and even though that's not relevant to this topic, I am mentioning it because it is a registered charity which he established with his late wife Jill in 2021 and we did have a discussion with him on the dangers of asbestos in our housing back in episode 218 and I recommend you pause this now, bookmark that episode and come back here right away. Right, you're back. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Martin. It is always wonderful to catch up with you. Yeah, great to be on the show and a uh, very relevant time to be talking about all of these um, worrying trends with regards to interest rates and mortgage cliffs and or what have you. So, yeah, I mean, it's always good to chat, Martin. Um, we've been chatting for many years um, and it's always enlightening. I think the the conversation around the mortgage cliff is prolific. It, it is something that is very much in people's minds, whether you've got a property uh, and you've got a mortgage. Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we've, we repriced our customers and every time we can get them a slightly better rate, they're, they're over the moon, even if it's 20 basis points, you know, and, and they'll come back and say they really are hurting. You know, there's a some clients, even if they are fixed, they know that what's to come, but also people entering the market. Like there is a, you know, a view that, oh, I'm not going to buy something now. Um, I'm going to wait for, you know, September, October when all these fixed rates come off. And so it's a big topic. And then, you know, there's a lot of false dawn sort of commentary out right now that there's maybe some green shoots that maybe are going to be squashed, I guess. Um, so what's your take on sort of the challenge we've got coming up over the next six months? What's the size of it? And yeah, is it a storm in a teacup or is there some real danger zones that people need to be aware of? Well, my own perspective is that there are some real dangers here. Um, it's somewhere between 800,000 and 900,000 loans, which will be fixed and that which we drop over to default variable unless people do things. And uh, quite a lot of those loans were taken out two or three years ago when the fixed rate were below 2%. And we know that the typical variable rate now is what, five and a half, six, six and a half, depending on exactly your, your circumstances. Now, not everybody who is actually switching from 
fixed to variable has a very big mortgage. Some people have a combination of fixed and variable. That's why I talk about the number of mortgages, not the number of households, because not all households are actually in the same boat. But if you look at the RBA statistics, they're suggesting that it's July, which is a particular peak, and that is a particular anniversary from when they took the loans out two or three years ago. And certainly in my surveys, about half of the people on fixed loans are acutely aware of what's looming. But about half of people who have a similar loom coming haven't really thought about the implications. And that's a bit of a concern because, of course, it's like wait for Christmas. You know it's going to come, right? And so what I've been um, encouraging people to do is to get aware of what is likely to happen and think ahead. So don't just put your head on the sand and say, oh, rates will be down by then. It's not going to be a big issue. Because my view is that we're going to find that uh, the RBA will lift the rates maybe again today and maybe again the next couple of months, which means that we're going to have much higher mortgage rates than we've been used to over the last two or three years. And it's worth saying, of course, that that two or three year period when rates went stupidly low was completely artificial. And it was created by government policy that was designed specifically to try and support the economy through COVID. The RBA took rates very low. They gave very cheap money to the banks through the term funding facility. So all of that enabled banks to lend out really, really cheaply. And they also expanded their ability to lend. So a lot of people went in with very significant leverage and very low rates. So we've got a bit of a perfect storm coming. And I do think that this is different. I think that this is something which some people will find very difficult, not least because of course, they're already struggling with inflation and the higher cost of living and real wages growing slower than inflation, which means we're all going, already going backwards. So do you think that is immediate though? Like there's this, you know, all the charts, someone's watching this, uh, listening to this, not going to see my hands moving, but um, there's all the charts that show that peak, right? That, you know, that's when the most amount of fixed rates are coming off, you know, middle of this year and uh, makes sense. You know, a lot of went, went for three year fixed rates. Um, so three years from 2020, right? And then there was a period when a lot of people went four and five year fixed rates, um, when they really dropped as well. But you know, it's not going to be immediate, right? Like you don't all of a sudden go from fixed to variable or is your survey saying that, you know, uh, all of a sudden we're going to start seeing people having problems with their mortgages. Um, and is your take that that's going to lead to straight away force potential sellings? Um, or do you think that, you know, like we were surprised many times during the the boom to keep the party going, the banks are going to do all sorts of tricky things to um, protect the system. Oh, they're already doing it. So that you can now get 35 and 40 year mortgages, right? And if you do the calculations, if you extend the life of the mortgage, you can reduce the monthly repayment just a little, despite the fact that you are paying a hell of a lot more downstream to, to the banks. So the banks are quite happy with that. Um, and, and the other thing that people are doing is actually um, the banks are encouraging them if you've got a problem, we'll put you on in interest only for a year or two or three, right? And in some cases, they're even giving repayment holidays. So they are already doing some of those things. Um, but the difference this time is that what's unpredictable is where rates are going to go from this point forward, right? Now, there are some economists who are saying, oh, the RBA will be cutting rates September, October, November, December this year. And therefore, you know, this is a short-term blip and it's going to actually ease back. So stick on a variable rate you'll be able to ride the rates down. I have a view that says, I think inflation is more sticky. I think the RBA is probably going to have to hold rates higher for longer. So I think any rate cuts is a 2024 conversation. And that means that there will be 
a significant hike in people's cash flow for their mortgages. But it doesn't mean that they're going to turn into a pumpkin on the first afternoon. You know, this is going to take some time to grind forward. So if you look at what happened in the UK and the US when um, rates were actually lifted, it took two or three years for this to really bite. And I believe that we're going to see a slow grind up in terms of defaults and, and pressure on households. Uh, people will do logical things like refinancing and pulling equity out and getting a bigger mortgage, but using some of the refinancing to pay other debts. That's already happening. More than half of refinancing at the moment includes equity withdrawal. So that's one factor that we should bear in mind. About 50 billion at the moment per annum. Very surprising number. <laughs> <laughs> Well, just on that, if we go back to the, um, you're talking about the refinances, because I, I heard somewhere that 50% of the combined big banks loan book consists of loans written when rates were 2% or less. I, is that correct? Do you, does that sound right? Yeah, it's, a, it, it's slightly over that. It, it's about, it's close to 60%. So that's, that's scary. But I also know that during that period, of, particularly with COVID, uh, lockdowns and all the rest of it, a lot of mortgage brokers kept busy by encouraging their clients to refinance. So before we sort of dig deeper into this idea of digging into, into equity when people are refinancing now, how much of that 60% of the bank's loan book is sort of old loans that were rinsed and basically, you know, rinsed and, and, and redressed in lower interest rates versus new borrowing? Yeah, it's about a third. So a third is new borrowing? No, other way. So 40% of the... Two-thirds new borrowing. Basically, 40% of the, the big bank's loan book currently uh, new is new lending. And when we say new lending, over the basically over the last very low interest rate environment. Okay. so Correct. Correct. Over that two or three year right. period. So, and so that obviously is much more worrying than if it was a high percentage of refinances because uh, the equity position of a lot of those borrowers is not going to be as robust as it would be if they'd owned a property for 10 years. I mean, like I talked in the intro that part I've got split, you know, part variable, part fixed. So my, my fix, my variable bit, I've been wearing that already and the fixed bit, ugh, um, you know, that's coming, but, but it's, you know, at, at, and I'm well, 50% of people that apparently is aware of it and, and taking into account, whereas, you're saying in your surveys that half the people are just sort of digging their head in the sand and hoping it won't hurt them. Is that what you're suggesting? Correct. And unfortunately, quite a few of those are the recent first-time buyers. The people who were encouraged by politicians to go and get those big loans, you know, we're supporting housing, you know, home builder, homeland packages, uh, all those incentive programs, even the, the, the government-backed, um, you know, 5%, all of those things were in play. A lot of people saw that as an opportunity. And by the way, they also pulled money out of superannuation to be able to actually put a deposit together. So, you know, the whole gradient was tilted in one direction. And a lot of people, quite logically at the time, said, well, you know, the, bank, the, the banks are saying, the government's saying, we had ministers where Michael Sucker saying, you should buy now, it's a perfect time to buy, giving... Mm financial advice. I remember that front page, wasn't it? Is like, yeah. now's a good time to buy the federal politician on the front page of the paper. I mean, it, it, exactly. Now, let's just be clear why they did it. Of course, they were very concerned about the broad economic climate. And at the time when COVID was raging, the first part of COVID, nobody quite knew how this was going to play out. And they, they obviously wanted to take out some insurance, but they perpetuated this 
trajectory way too long because it soon became clear that maybe things weren't quite so chaotic and what they didn't do was to start correcting early so we had a lot of people pulled in with those really low rates the banks also because they use this three percent buffer were able to actually offer a bigger loan because of course by definition the borrowing power increased the reverse is now true so everything was orientated why? Because they wanted the economic activity. They wanted to help the builders and the construction sector and the finance sector. Now, I've always said all of those programs were not really about helping people to get into the property market and, you know, aid that. It was about the broad economic agenda. It was about trying to stop the economy going into recession. Now, unfortunately, the result of that was essentially throwing some people under a bus. Yeah, so one of the interesting things we're um, seeing is that you know, one of the get out of jail cards is, is that you, um, you're struggling in your mortgage, um, you know, you're three or four years into it, which is what, you know, someone bought in 2020, they're three or four years in, right? When this debt stress, they could extend their loan term. Um, equity is hard to access at the moment, right? Because, um, the, you're right. A lot of the issues are going to be in that first home buyer market in areas where there's lots of first home buyers and also where a lot of investors went, but a lot of investors went around in this, these years, which so was a lot of the first home buyers. So. Typically, you're going to see where that home builder um, was also encouraging is new house and land packages. Um, and also recent house and land packages, maybe a few years before, where they already had high debts and um, going into COVID um, and they and prices potentially haven't gone up, for example. So they haven't got much equity and they've got only one person working, you know, and there's a new baby or um, incomes haven't been risen and inflation's biting. And, you know, we'll talk about debt stress locations and you'll probably, things will back that up. Refinancing is a real big issue at the moment. Um, it's crazy. Bank, there's a total bank war going on. It's you know the CEO of uh, Westpac, the CEO of CBA, have come out and said they're basically loss leading. Yep. The discounts we're seeing on loans are just enormous. The margin on top of the RBA rate is like 1.7 percent at the moment or less. Um, and so it's they're just really just buying market, just buying market share really, and with loans that aren't that profitable. Can I just ask something about that? Because this has got me bothered. So, okay, say they normally add a 2% margin, right? So interest rates, official rates are 0.1, and so then they're charging 2.1, right? If interest rates go up to 4% and they're still adding their 2% margin, right, then they're charging 6%. Hang on, what are they charging? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it goes up. Like they make more money because the percentage of a bigger interest rate is bigger than of a smaller interest rate. Right. So there's two, two, there's two factors. One is what is the cost of the funds to them? So what's the cost of money to them? And then what can they lend it out at? Right. And that's the margin that we've got to be thinking about. Right. Because what the banks are doing is effectively offering those interest rates on those mortgages at a much lower rate. So in fact, if you look at the cost of their funds versus what they're actually putting it out, they're hardly making anything. In fact, some are losing money. Yeah. So, so my question is, I, I read somewhere that the banks are making windfall because they basically make more money as interest rates go up. But you're, what you're saying is that because there's a price war going on, that they're actually making less money, um, which is sort of interesting in, in itself. And <laughs> so it's, it's it sounds a little bit like the profitless boom in the in the um, in the building. It's a good analogy. The CBA came out this week and said that their net interest margin peaked in October. Um, and now all of a sudden it's actually getting smaller and smaller. And when you talk about those margins, so back at when rates were 0.1%, a good variable, I'm trying to draw my memory back, was probably 2.3 or 2.4. Do 
yep. at the lowest. And so that margin, if you look at it from the RBA rate, not just the cost of farm was 2.2. Um, so 0.1 for the RBA, 2.3 for a borrower. The margin now, RBA rate's 3.35. You can get a variable rate under 5%, so 1.6. And if you're an existing customer that hasn't repriced, you would be at least 50, 60, even up to 1% above what a new customer's getting. The crazy thing what banks are doing is before, if you ask the bank for a better deal and you're an existing customer, they say, oh yeah, I'll give you 20 basis points or 10 basis points, but I'm not going to match what I'm giving new customers. I'll play on your apathy. I know that you won't go through the paperwork to refinance. Now, Westpac, NAB, CBA are pretty much pricing you like you're a new customer. Um, Macquarie are saying, no, we don't want to play a part in this. This is loss leading. This is this is not going to be forever. They're really taking a stance. Um, but yeah, and even if you're fixed in, they're still giving you a better deal. But the, the issue they're having now is that people can't extend their loan terms and they can't get cash out. So yes, they can reduce their interest rate, but they can't really reduce their repayments too much um, because they're borrowed at seven times salary or six times salary, and now they can only borrow at five times salary. So they're basically a mortgage prisoner, and then they've had valuation issues. And so this is where it's going to take time for those people, even if they can keep themselves on a decent rate, those rates are still going to be five or 6%, and they're still going to have to pay big mortgages, and they can't refinance and release equity. Um, and that's something that's sort of down the line is that sort of your take on it martin yeah there's a couple of observations firstly of course the other losers are depositors so if you look at what the interest rate rises have done you know it's gone up more than three three percent but most depositors only got by half that so in fact the way that the banks are doing at the moment is to rate depositors to be able to actually subsidize cheap loans to people who are actually refinancing the second point is some of the banks when they're actually looking to refinance, are actually not doing a new underwriting. What they're doing is saying, well, the previous bank underwrote it, we'll actually take that as red and just run with it, which is interesting and slightly risky. The third thing is, some now some banks are being proactive. They're actually phoning up borrowers, preempt them before they actually think about refinancing and saying, hey, we can offer you a better deal. So that is unheard of, but it's happening at the moment. So we're, we're in a very strange environment. As a result of all that, though, the margins that the banks are experiencing are getting squished just at the time when international funding costs are rising because the bond rates are actually um, much higher than they were. And, of course, they also have to repay the term funding facility, which is that ultra-treat money from the RBA, under which, by the way, they're getting 3% plus from the RBA at the moment. That's going to disappear over the next year or so, which means that they've got another pincer movement they got to try and manage as well. So my perspective is we are going to see this pressure on the bank's margins really come to the fore over the next few months at the very point where some of those households are now starting to move towards risking default. And in fact, the latest um, S&P ratings show a slight uptick in terms of 30-day delinquencies. Not a huge amount yet, but it looks to me as that's another leading indicator. So I think the financial system risks are actually quite significant now and it's interesting that APRA came out quite recently and said no we're going to keep our three percent assessment buffer we're not going to drop it because we think there are financial stability risks there lurking below the waterline so I think this is going to be uncomfortable for bearers but I think also uncomfortable with the banks too and frankly the banks have dug themselves into this mighty hole now 
where effectively their margins are being eaten. Interesting. Now, at the beginning of this rate hike cycle, the RBA released figures stating that the average mortgage holder was 17 months ahead in repayments, yeah. you know, in their offset accounts. Yeah. Um, how fast is that balance falling? Well, it depends where you look. So there are still people who are well ahead. About one third of mortgage holders are well, well ahead and still, you know, months ahead. And they've got these offset accounts, which basically means that they can always pull it back. But there's another third that are actually got no buffers. They've got no savings, no buffers. They're actually living hand to mouth. They're using credit. They're using buy now, pay later. They've got nothing. And they're the ones who are really exposed. And then there's a third in the middle who effectively did have some buffers, but those buffers are running down fast. And in fact, the savings ratio that came out last week in the latest national accounts showed that the savings ratio is pretty much down to where it was before the um, the COVID episode now. So a lot of people have raided their savings and have nowhere else to go. Will population growth um, sol- save us? Well, population growth, of course, is significant. We, there could be half a million people coming to Australia this year through the various schemes that include students and uh, and other migrants. Now, many of those will come in as initially people looking for the rental sector. And of course, the rental sector is very sick at the moment. You know, people are seeing 20% uplifts in rents if you can find anywhere, massive queues, massive fights to find anywhere to live. So we have a massive rental problem and that is created by the high migration. Some of those will ultimately then buy and that will then put more demand on the on the property sector in some areas. And, of course, some of them will be bringing money in with them because they've maybe worked elsewhere previously. So it's definitely another factor in, this, in the supply-demand disequilibrium. But I don't see how that solves the household financial stress problems that we're talking about for existing households in Australia. In fact, it makes it worse because whilst 47% of borrowing households are in mortgage stress, 68% of renters are in rental stress at the moment in my surveys. So we've actually got a financial pro- problem in the rental sector, and the rental sector is the one that's hit first by those migration uplifts. Yeah, but it does... If people do decide that buying is 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 preferable to renting with rising rents and, and you know, falling house prices and also with immigrants coming that are, are able to buy, and also we've got building approval, so that that's slow down significantly so we've got a, su- a supply you know issue as well so and 500,000 new immigrants basically if you just to put that into sort of a, some perspective we normally our sales volumes in a given year is usually around 600,000 dwellings and that's falling because we our listings are falling plus of course there's days of markets are stretching out as well so so there's you know maybe Say for argument's sake, this year, you know, this 12 months, we have 500 dwellings sell and then 500 new people come into the country. And obviously, they're not going to take up 500 dwellings. And we've got a rental cr- crisis. So so some people are going to be able to buy that may not have previously even considered buying. Um, and, you know, potentially the sorts of property they could go in and buy is the stuff that's more likely going to be subject to rental or to uh, mortgage stress. And potentially where there might be people forced to offload. I mean, that, I guess that's why I look at those numbers and I think, well, it's, it's not insignificant. Um, and, you know, it, it, I know it's not as simple as going, okay, people come into the country, they're all going to go there and fill up the houses where they happen to exist. I, I, I'm not that naive. But I wonder, I just, I wonder about some of the more vulnerable areas, and we'll get into this because, of course, you do have these maps that looks at those areas of greatest mortgage stress. Is there a potentially a way of that would 
would ease the pain somewhat or provide some sort of a buffer. Well, there are there are a few things that you can argue provide some sort of level of support to further falls in house prices. And obviously, one of them is we've still got first-time buyers who would like to get in. In fact, the number of first-time buyers able to purchase at the moment is as low as it's been for a long, long time. But that doesn't mean there aren't first-time buyers out there who would love to get to get in. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of additional first-time buyer play to try and encourage some of those to to come in and buy, right? The second group then are those migrants who effectively are also, in some cases, within a few months or years, likely to buy as well. Um, and some of those could be buying in areas. The first-generation migrants quite often go to particular areas around our uh, urban centres. And um, interestingly, some of those urban centres are also very highly stressed at the moment. So you'd think there might be some turnover there. The other thing we're seeing, though, is we're seeing quite a lot of multi-generational households buying together, particularly larger properties. And that's particularly true in some Western Sydney areas. So, you know, you you might have two or three generations buying a larger property. And so they're buying at a different point in the market. And that's also supporting it. And the final thing to say is we're also seeing quite a lot of property investors jettisoning properties at the moment. So they can't afford, because whilst they can put the rents up to a certain level, they can't afford to make this work because there's no capital appreciation. There's lots of new rules coming in in terms of uh, investment properties and what you have to do and all those sorts of things. And as a result of that, about 20% of properties that were in the investment sector have disappeared over the last year or so. Some of them have gone into Airbnb, but many others have been sold. And uh, some of the stock that's on the market at the moment is old investment properties that haven't really been maintained very well or not up to scratch, but are also now in, in the market. And that's one of the interesting observations. If you look at listings, there's a, a, a drop in listings overall, but there's a rise in stale listings. So there's a lot, a lot of, you know, B and C class properties, to, to quote the, uh, the old you know, definitions, which are hanging around. And some of those are investment properties. So this is a really rich and complex dynamic. Because a lot of the people who are renting are first, potential first home buyers, right? Um, yep. I literally jumped off a call today and they're like, well, we don't want to go back into the rental market. Our lease is finishing. Oh, we've been told that. We need to go live with family and then we're going to try to buy. No, absolutely. There's, you know, properties priced on the marginal buyer, right? It's, it's, it's priced on you know, how many properties are available, how many people want to buy them, not on what the whole market can afford, right? And if the whole market tried to sell, like the whole market tried to do a run on the bank, it would be a different price. Um, nowhere near what the price of the property is today. It's just because of the listings are kept tight. And as long as you create enough buyers to offset those listings um, who are willing to pay current prices, that's what drives prices. And um, so I, I would say that absolutely the, the, the tightness of A-grade properties and the, the, the lots of stock that are the Bs and Ds, you can see it in the suburbs, you're right, those properties. What's your thoughts on the market really splitting, you know, like price falls really stopping and because listings ultimately grind the quality assets to a halt, you know, because it's just very little and there's enough people willing to buy at the current prices. And then the market splitting into the, the stuff that's, you know, there is debt stress. There's no urgency to buy. The properties aren't scarce. People can see, smell blood on the streets, you know, that sort of saying, right? And people say, why would I buy now when I could buy it cheaper in 12 months time, that downward deflationary buy market? Could you see a world where you know, in 12 months time, part of the market, we already saw this in, in last quarter, the top end went up 4% and the market didn't. So can you see this, you know, I know those market, those numbers are, you know, a bit fudged, but you know what I mean? Um, do you see this, this 
this gap between quality and uh, the other stuff widening in this time frame where people don't want to pay that for that type of property when interest rates are five, six, seven percent, but they are willing to bet on this property because it's so scarce and they've been looking for two years. Yeah, you've got to go granular. You know, I always say this: you got, but even more so now. Uh, and by the way, the RBA lifted by twenty-five basis points. Oh, thank so you. Live announcement from Martin there. Yeah, last month. Last month we were we were interviewing Eliza Rowan uh, at this exact time. Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. As expected. As expected. <laughs> yeah. So, and what they're basically saying is, there's probably more more to come. Look, so when when you come to look at property, right, you can't look at these averages. You can't look at these, you know, all Sydney index or all Australia index. To give you an example, and I I live north of Wollongong, beach suburb. House prices in this suburb reached a median peak of just over 2.2 million a few months back. Today, house prices are down median to 1.6 mil. That's a really significant slide, and it shows you that in this regional area, the dynamic has changed. We don't now have a lot of those people from Sydney who were coming down here. We've actually got more people saying, oh, actually, maybe I'll go and move up closer to Sydney now because the prices there are, are more reasonable. So in regional areas... I'm seeing quite strong corrections. That's true in also in Newcastle and other places. But when, so when you're seeing that, and this is the thing with median prices, of course, is that that the people with the better properties are not listing them or they are and they're selling for less money because there's there's two different, there's, there's lots Correct. of ways that the, the composition of this um, data can tell a different story, right? What what are you seeing on that? Let's let's tell the th- in the in the thorough area, there weren't there aren't that many high quality properties on, but there are quite a few, frankly, dogs on. Yeah, right. <laughs> so. And so it's it's compositional as well as price. Now you know, I, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to actually land a price that I was happy with, and I think this was a pr- pretty high quality property that I've sold. But you have to understand that the dynamics are, are quite different from where they were go back a year and we had so many people wanting to buy here particularly from sydney and they were buying everything and that's what happens in a boom you know <laughs> correct yeah. there's no discernment <laughs> no so property prices in austin mirror the next one up went up 35 percent in a year it was ridiculous and and uh, you know unrealistic, unrealistically priced now if you then go up towards sydney and say <laughs> quote if, if, if you think of, let's say, Northern Beaches, right? Northern Beach is quite interesting because we are still seeing quite significant falls on the Northern Beaches at the moment. There's still a lot of supply-demand disequilibrium. Now, a lot of people bought in the Northern Beaches too, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But if you go to the West, well, actually, if you look at Blanktown, you know, there's been quite a significant number of properties still selling close to peak. So there's a different dynamic in Blacktown than to Northern Beaches than to, to Thoreau, right? So you've really got... I've got a hypothesis. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, 
We would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. So the hypothesis for me is that the Northern Beaches and Chris can, he can see, <laughs> see this is where he lives. So of course he'll have something to say, no doubt. But the Northern Beaches for most Sydney siders is not really viewed, and I'm talking the upper Northern Beaches, so, you know, past the bends at uh, at um, Avalon, um, that the Northern Beaches is seen as this aspiration, I'd love to live there, but I can't cope with the commute. And so COVID was a boom for the Northern Beaches because, of, yay, now I can do it because I don't have to commute. And of course, so it's always behaved very much like a regional area, like like that sort of northern Wollongong suburbs, the northern beaches of a city, and the distance is somewhat similar as well to the CBD. And in fact, it's not as easily accessible because at least down to Wollongong, to Thirurul and Osmi, you've got a train line, right? So so the northern beaches has always been a real problem to get access to, and it's been a real punish, and as I said, beyond the bends, you know, even worse. And... I remember the GFC, and I also remember filming up there in 2010, 11, and 12, probably 13, 14 even for that matter. And and that whole area, just the days on markets just stretched out forever. The amount, the volume of listings was extraordinary. It was really impacted by the GFC because, of course, a lot of weekenders were up there. So, so there's my theory is that it is in Sydney, but it behaves more like one of those um, – Sea change, tree change areas, because of its because of its the, it's really the tyranny of distance. So and it's got lovely lifestyle as long as you don't have to commute. So that's my theory. What do you reckon? Oh, I think things are a bit different in two thousand and eight. Um, you know, like the the market's matured much into more of a family market up here than it was. Um, it's a different buyer pool than it was say fifteen years ago. Um, you know that distance felt a lot more. A lot of the people with the second homes are actually making them their first home. Um, and if they were going to let go of one, because they're getting into their, you know, people who are buying holiday homes are usually getting later in life, right? Um, and so they're, they're like, well, if I'm in my 50s, I'm going to retire here. I'm going to force the kids to get on a bus for the last five years of school. And there's heaps of buses that go to all the private schools from up here as well. Um, so I would say that it's moving more into our owner occupied demand than a second home market. There's difference. There's Palm Beach, which is really on the peninsula, which is typically, but that market's probably as strong as any, you know, mm. arguably there's a few bad roads like Barangari Road. But if you go look at things around Aluka Beach, which is sort of Sandy Point, good luck. You know, Mr. the guy who sold his Garbo business, bought one there a couple of weeks ago for 40 mil. Mm. Um, uh, you look on the other side of Palm Beach, which is when you've got the beach views up over the heads, big prices as well. Um, you know, Jennifer Hawkins selling their property for thirty million in Whale Beach. Um, so that that market, if anything, is is sort of gentrified into almost the dream forever home market, um, rather than a holiday home market. Um, and I, I'd say though that the beaches is still going through a bit of a stretch because of the quality of listings is really drying up to the B, Cs, and Ds, and people are being very picky because they're already making a compromise to buy on the beaches. Commute. I'm not going to make three or four compromises. Commute aspect road noise you know privacy stairs um and so people are basically saying well i'm not moving up there for that um and you know when you look around i track the listings obviously because i live up here good luck trying to find something on a good street with good aspect just not not existing but you know there's some there's some 
cracking blocks around that are, you know, needing big renos actually. So that's, you know, like what, so really scarce assets. So it's going to be something that they sell, but that's a gutsy move right now, that sort of, you know, dream block <laughs> doing a build. So it's, it's, it's interesting, it's micro, but if you look to the median on the beaches, you'll find it dropped dramatically because all the CSDs are selling and all the CSDs are selling after two or three months on the market. And then they're, they're four sellers because why would you be, if you've been on the market for two or three months, you're only selling out if you absolutely have to. So buyers are saying, hey, we're starting low and we're going to work our way up and we're going to see how desperate you are. Uh, I think that's what the beaches is going through is a real tightening of good stuff. And people are basically making low ball offers on the poor stuff. Which it goes back to the composition. And so every area has that sort of thing play out to some degree or, or another. And it's one of the reasons why the price fall seems so dramatic. Whilst, you know, and I've been tracking, and I've said this many times in the podcast, I've been tracking properties that had sold, you know, during that run up to the peak and then unsold since. And thus far, the last time I looked at my, the last time I added one to the tally, I got 23 or four properties and 80, uh, 78% of them have sold it more than they sold for in 2021. So that doesn't say prices are falling, but that's the problem is, of course, that um, that's not really where the data is derived from. You know, the median isn't necessarily derived from those examples and, the, and nor is the hedonic index, you know, so... Um, you know, and so this is why we you know, we, we all agree that the granular and Martin, you said it earlier, this is why understanding this granular stuff, people don't buy a, you don't buy a market index in property. You're not buying a bit of the Sydney market, you know, and I had some guy on Facebook trying to take me on about arguing that all areas go up the same. All, all properties go up. And I'm like, they don't. And he's like, all these charts and graphs to show me. I said, you're using aggregated data to try to prove a granular argument. You know, you can't, you, you know, you're using the wrong data set to try to prove your argument. And and I'm sick of arguing with you. If you're listening to this, your name's Luke, then stop it. You're being an idiot. Um, you know, it's like, God, gee, if someone else weighed in on it too, it's quite funny. Anyway, I'll, just, I'll answer these things a couple of times and I'll go, that's enough. I'm not talking about it anymore. But but this is why a lot of the headlines, why a lot of the analysis, why a lot of the economists, they're, they're working on this aggregated data. They're working on these, these models that are pumping in, the inputs are aggregated and they're not recognizing that individuals can suffer in a boom and other individuals can actually you know um do very very well in a falling market you know and it's a, the art is understanding who what what is it that they're doing differently absolutely well you have to yeah you have to understand the local market and the local dynamic and uh you know all these generalizations don't help but what i will make the point here that the most significant linkage to house price movement is availability of credit. Of all the other things that are going on, right? If you take interest rates ultra low, if you reduce the hurdles to borrowing so you can borrow multiple times, that's going to put a, a rocket on the house prices. That's why we saw house prices go through the roof when COVID and 0.1% cash rate, all of the government stimulus. The reverse is also true that if you actually lift interest rates, and reduce borrowing power. You know, the typical borrowing power is probably 40% down from where it was at the peak, maybe even more now. Um, that availability of credit is going to actually have a very significant breaking effect on property prices. And of all the things that I model, you know, supply, demand, and all the other things, this credit availability thing is by far the most dynamic when it comes to what 
happens to property prices over the next 12 to 18 months. And we saw that, obviously, for different reasons back in 2016, 17, 18 and 19, really, with APRA and the Royal Commission. So we did see that availability credit and how that plays out. And so it's not interest rates per se, it's the impact interest rates has on borrowing capacity. Um, yeah, because people, some people can still afford, you know, higher interest rates. Let's face it, as a, as a market, we've had periods of time we've had interest rates a lot higher than this, and people still buy and sell property. But it's got to be, um, it's got to, I guess, adjust to its new level. Is that effectively what you're saying there? What I'm saying is that if you're a new first time buyer now, and you can look at how much you can get to get a property today. And if you go back in a time machine and have the same conversation with a lender a year plus ago, you can now get 40% less. So your ability to buy, is in, it's in a different market segment or you've got to pay a different price. And, and you can see that working out pretty much across the whole of the property market. So that is a commonality, right? But then you have to overlay with the other thing that we've been talking about is about the micro markets and how that micro market in, interacts. Because what it means is that we'll have different types of people with different credit capacity to be able to actually buy in different areas. And you also do, of course, have some down traders, which is, of course, people who've been sitting on quite large capital appreciations because of that run up over the last couple of years. And now some of those down traders are thinking, oh, maybe I should try and get out before it actually drops. And, of course, they can put $300,000 into uh, a superannuation um, down trader account if, if they're over 55. And a lot of people are choosing to do that. So that's another dynamic we've got in the market. So that's why it's really important to understand the locality, the types of buyers, and also the credit uh, landscape as well. Prices haven't fallen as much as buying capacity, right? But buyers who were stretching their borrowing capacity to the nth degree have had to reduce their budgets by that amount, right? And so they've had to, instead of buying the $2 million suburb, they're buying at $1.2 million, right? Or they're saying, I'm not buying at all. They're just saying, well... I'm not going to buy in that suburb. I might as well just keep saving. The other element is, is that people who say had a budget of say a two million buying capacity, and but they only wanted to buy at one point two, well, their buying capacity is fallen at forty percent, so they're still buying at the same price, right? Um, so those a lot of people weren't stretching to their max. But what we're seeing is that people who have first time buyers with huge capacities are not going to use it. In a heat of a market, they absolutely use it. They use every single dollar, and they use and. And that's what we saw. You saw the multiple loans over six-time DTI, which is sort of people stretching. It yep. was one in four loans, right? Um, and so you saw a lot of people stretching to their maxes. And that's, I think, the interesting dynamic is that, you know, people who are entering the market now, finally, they've got their deposit. They're in their new relationship. They're ready, you know, I dropped off the phone one just then, you know. They could spend a lot more than they're wanting to spend. And that's because of interest rates. Interest rates really, uh, and so if, uh, while there's this uncertainty around interest rates going up, that person's not going to have the confidence to go and spend it all because they just don't want to go. They want to have that buffer. A lot of first-time buyers want to live the life plus own the property as well. Um, and so unless they see that path where they're not going to have to give up everything to own a property, um, they're going to be conservative. And so I think that's when there's a flattening, plateauing of rates or there's a fall in rates. That's when the buyers will have confidence to spend their borrowing capacities. If And I think that's just not the dynamic at the moment. If you, like you Do you see yourself in more... Uh, we'd love to have him on here, but I don't think he's going to come on ever. Chris Joyce Camp, um, where he still thinks maybe another, what do you see, we reckon another 10% drop in house prices um, and circa 25%. And what would have to happen for that to happen? So I, I think that Chris is pretty much on the money. I run different three different scenarios at the moment, and 
Chris's scenario and my, one of my scenarios runs pretty much the same, which basically says we don't get a recession in Australia, but we see the interest rates going a little higher and staying high, certainly for the next year, 18 months or more. That will be sufficient to take us into the territory that Chris is talking about. But if we actually get into a recession in Australia, and remember China's just announced their growth target is now 5%, which is a lot lower than previously. So some of our export markets might actually be affected by what China's doing. And if we actually continue to see rates hitting households and their ability to spend continuing to reduce, we saw the recent statistics showing that in fact you know, retail bumped a little bit higher, having been low in December, but it's still not looking flash. So there is definitely an argument to say that it could be worse. What I can't see is a scenario that says in six to 12 months, prices are going to be taken off again and we're going off to the races again. I don't believe that we are going to see interest rates anywhere like we saw them. So they might come back a little, but we are now in a more normal environment. I don't believe that the Reserve Bank, unless it's really, really worried about a significant recession, will cut rates and do more quantitative easing more likely they're going to continue their quantitative tightening and keep rates relatively high. Inflation won't come down quickly. It will take some time. So I think Christopher Joy's view of the world is probably quite close to where my central scenario is, but I do think there's a downside scenario beyond that, which is worrying. I can't see the bulls are right in this environment. I just can't see how we're going to be able to say we've hit the bottom and prices are going to take off again. I just can't believe it. It's funny though, Martin, I wouldn't expect you to think the bulls were right ever. Um, but also it is interesting because we're we're interviewing you obviously on the first Tuesday of March, right? This won't go to air for a few weeks. We're always a few weeks behind. We try to be topical but not urgent. So we're looking at February and February typically in the Sydney market anyway is, is boom month. You know, I mentioned earlier, it's the, it's a month where the small amount of listings meets a higher amount of buyers. And you can get an idea of how the market, how the how the year is going to pan out by what happens in March. Now, on the first weekend of March, uh, we saw the clearance rates that had been in the in the 70s and the early early to mid 70s for the last two weeks of um, uh, February, and they dipped below 70% in uh, Sydney on the first weekend of March. And even at open houses, we've sort of anecdotally, we're hearing from buyers agents and also my team saying that there were less people out, but agents are even starting to say that, right? Whereas at the end of January and into February, it was like, my God, I can't believe how many people are out. There's so much urgency. We were seeing a lot more people even register at auction, but they weren't necessarily bidding. Um, And, you know, so there was obviously just that frenzy, but it, it seems to have, you know, I don't want to call it too early, but it does seem that it was just typical February and very short-lived. And I can't imagine that it wouldn't be because there's no other uh, factors pointing to, oh, we're about to see a little bit of a boom or an uptick, right? So, you know, I, I'm astounded at people, though, that don't who, who will be prepared to comment on the property market but aren't aware of that fundamental cyclical nature of it, the seasonality of it. And I'm like, just shut your mouth. Like, just be careful. I mean, I've been talking about it because I've been observing this, but I'm like, this is what I'm seeing right here, right now. But I'm not going to predict that the boom, you know, we're going to return to boom, you know, because of this. This is the time of year when you would expect to see that sort of behavior. So it does amaze me. So, yes, I'm with you. I don't think the bulls are going to um, be proven right this year. (laughs) No, and the other point to make is that we have the RBA lift in November and December. 
but then went on holiday in January, yes. right? <laughs> uh, we all forgot, and then they came back and lifted in February. So that's another factor which influenced. And of course, there's a three-month lag or so between the RBA's announcement of rates and actually hitting bank accounts. So remember that we you know, have to go back in the time machine and remember what happened. We're still dealing with October, November, and December rate rises so far as households' budgets are concerned, right? We've already now locked in you know, February and now March, so there's another two rate rises to come. Um, that's another leading indicator of more negativity. And like I said, credit availability is going to get even tighter because borrowing power is, is reduced further. I just can't, you know, the only thing that you'd hold your hat on to is higher migration, but I don't think migration is going to save us. And neither do I think that I can think of policies that either the feds or the states could roll out to reverse it. So I think people have plenty of time. You know, if they're thinking of buying, they should just chill, see what happens. Unless there's an urgent need, just watch and wait. Because I think property prices later in the year will be lower from where they are now. And I think they will stay lower, not just for a few months, but probably for a year or maybe two. There's three, yeah. Well, we've already talked about the granule thing here, but, and the listings, which um, oh, we've had uh, three clients find in the last week. Um, two had been looking for over two years. One was actually one year, three years, 64 days. I was like, we're the first guy did. He contacted me and it was like literally bang on two years. But they've all three of them. Two of them were bought over two years. We're actually a bit patient. So they've been actually looking all the way through the boom in 2021. They're all looking last year and they finally bought something at the start of this year. And they've all got, and the one he bought on the weekend, um, been over six, over six months with a buyer's agent, probably close to nine months. Um, and just saying no to every finally bought a north facing terrace on a great street um, in Melbourne. And that's their issue has been finding property, right? Yep. There's a lot of buyers that have been in the market for a long, long time. And they're worried about missing the bouncing ball um, because- you know, you don't want to be entering the party when there's a queue, right? And because everyone's going to be competing over that first property. And so what the, the danger of people waiting is, yes, you can sit on the sidelines, but ultimately the tighter markets, the fall, further markets fall, the tighter listings will get. And if you start to be that, you know, picking the market, the timing, you very, very easily can miss the bottom. And the bottom will happen fast because, It'll be rear re, way um, projecting, right? So people might say the bottom was in October, right? We're saying it's seasonal, right? But they could be saying, well, if it wasn't seasonal, the best buying was actually three months ago. So if you go out to the market right now and try to buy, we've well, already missed it. You've already missed that opportunity where you had very scared vendors and things like that. And I think that's the issue buyers just need to be very conscious of here if you're around the timing. Because I think when there is a, um, a plateauing of rates, the government will, will default back to its old strategy. Cutting rates and boosting borrowing capacity. APRA will come in and, and, and cut servicing. They'll cut the, the benchmark. And then there'll be first home buyer grants, like what we're saying. And there'll be enormous support for the market because the last thing the government want to do is to hold it on that level. They want to keep pumping it back to where it was. And so you've just got to, yeah, obviously be conscious of everything happening, your own personal finances and where their rates may go and build the buffers. But you just got to be too careful trying to, to catch that bouncing ball at the bottom. Because if you miss it, you can very easily start chasing your tail, especially under tight borrowing capacities. You're trying to buy at 1.5, and that's where exactly what your maximum borrowing capacity could be. That market moves to 1.7. What do you do? You've got to buy somewhere else at 1.5. And that's, that's the risk that people have when, in chasing markets. And so I would just, just say that on the other side of the coin. We, we literally bought for a client 
Donna, one of my team, bought for a client who's been on books. Actually, we worked it out. I think it's ended up being eleven months. Now, that's long. That's long for a, for a search, but not unheard of. And and it was a part of that. Obviously, had specific requirements, so we knew that. But part of it also was that his budget was very borderline, and and I had to have that conversation with him that if this happens to be the bouncing ball, because if all these people that seem to have decided it's FOMO at the bottom of the market, I need to get in now because it's about to take off, which seemed to be the mood in you know January and February. Then if that happens, you are going to miss out. You know, it's going to it it. it you will have to compromise heavily. Um, and at some point, that will happen. So at some point, it will bounce, right? And But we will never know until afterwards. And it won't necessarily be all the people that meet around the corner go, oh, I, I know it's the bottom. I know it's the bottom and I want to buy right now because I don't want to miss out on the bottom of the market. It won't be determined by those people. And it won't be known until it's past tense. But it will bounce at some point, Right. And, and I'm not saying we're not preparing to bounce this year, but I always have that conversation with people who have a borderline budget. You know, if they have lots of flex with their budget, you don't have to have that conversation. Um, but we also always want to be buying a quality property, you know, not, not, not freaking out and, and panic buying, whether it be at the bottom or the top of the market. So, you know, these are all conversations that have to be had with clients because their risk factors for different clients are, are different. But one the question before I ask you, we ask you for a Dumbo, Martin, is, look, not everybody is equally impacted when interest rates rise. And I guess, so what are your thoughts on really the in, increased inequity in our society? Because from what I see, and particularly with the rental crisis, it does seem to be this, you know, the widening gap um, of those who never will buy property um, or those that just managed to scrape in and bought some, bought a dog. Um, and might be forced to sell or never get back in. You know, this is not actually, I don't think, particularly good for our society. What do you think? No, well, I agree with <laughs> yeah. that. And I, I, I mean, I, I've had a you know a, a long campaign about the inequality that's been created by the way that the economy has been run for the last twenty odd years. So this isn't just a short term thing; it's a long term thing. And I see this K shaped thing going on at the moment. So there are a proportion of the population who are doing really well. And they're sitting on property. They've got perhaps a portfolio of properties and are really quite insulated from what's going on. Maybe a third of of, of, of households in that group. But the two thirds are really, really under the gun at the moment. And within that, half of them are actually really struggling. No cash flow, no buffers, stressed. Social issues now following through from that as well, because this isn't just an economic thing. This is actually a social thing. It's a societal thing. It impacts relationships and things like that. And it's particularly badly rolling over into the uh, into the rental sector. So I think we have a, a horrible amount of inequality between those two groups at the moment. And unfortunately, most of the government policies and most of the conversations are actually benefiting those in the have rather than the have not category. And I worry about, you know, when I came to Australia nearly 30 years ago from the UK, it was a very egalitarian society. I was amazed at how much more equal it was and everybody sort of seemed to be mucking in. I think that's gone away. I actually think we've got a much more polarized society now. And I'm afraid that's been driven by, you know, neoliberalism and the particular philosophies and the market-led philosophies and all of those things. It's not healthy. 
because we've got more bank lending now going to mortgages rather than to the productive lending to for business. Uh-huh. Two-thirds, one-third, it used to be the other way around. We've got people who are actually struggling to get in, can't find anywhere to live, more people living in cars, in tents, couch surfing, and this is not good for a society. So I'm afraid that I would mark this whole housing societal nexus as a fail over the last 20 to 30 years, but no politician, no political party actually wants or is able to tackle it, and that's a big fail. That could almost be your Dumbo, Martin. <laughs> it could well be, because I actually think it's probably the biggest... Oh, look, I mean, I've been watching this property market for a long, long time in Australia, and um, I've called out again and again for different thinking, joined-up thinking, different approaches, we, but it's, it's just they've perpetuated the same old, same old and just thrown more credit on the fire and, you know, got more, peop- more people more comfortable with spending a higher proportion of their income just to find somewhere to live. But it is a disaster and uh, we need a reset and we need a very different set of thinking. And I'm afraid our political leaders are letting us down. Yeah, I can't see a reset happening. Do you have a Dumbo for us <laughs> on top of that? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, give you an anti- I'll give you an anti-Dumbo. Because you, you, you may know I'm about Dumbo. to um, <laughs> uh, I'm about to uh, go back to the UK, and uh, I bought a property in the UK, and I have not visited it personally. So I actually did a virtual tour of the property. I did wonder about this. I got a local relative to actually walk around the property with me and on Zoom. And then I got a structural survey done. Now, the reason I've done that is because actually it's a property that I knew 20 years ago and I wanted to buy it then and I was able to buy it now. So I'm, I guess my anti-demo is you can buy virtually if you're careful and if you know what you're doing, right? <laughs> and I'll let you know about a month or so when I land in the UK and actually take ownership of this property as to whether in fact it is what I think it is, but I'm pretty confident. Uh, property investing is emotional. If you uh, try to buy the property you fell in love with 20 years ago, um, there's a bit of emotional attachment here, I think. <laughs> well, just just a little bit. I am also quite rational as well. So. <laughs> Martin, I've I've seen the video of the property that you posted, and um, it does look rather lovely. And wish you all the best. And going to miss you in Australia. Going to miss our chats in the same time zone. But we will definitely continue to have chats with you. We just have to do a little bit more careful organising. Absolutely. Well, I will still be following the Australian market, still running the Australian survey, still reporting on my channel on the Australian property market. But I'm also making some comparisons with other markets too. And certainly my intention is to continue to have my live shows on a Tuesday evening when I'm in the UK. It'll be morning there, evening here. But yeah, if we can find time, I'd love to keep keep the dollar going and uh, see where this amazing property market takes us. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Martin. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.